Hello and welcome to Whose Song Is It Anyway? In this episode, we chat to Tom Gray, founder of the Broken Record Campaign. My name is Dr Hayley Bosher and I'm a senior lecturer in intellectual property law at Brunel University, London. And I research in the area of uh, copyright and recently I wrote a book called Copyright in the Music Industry which was the inspiration for this podcast where Jules and I talk to people from the music industry about creativity and copyright. And my name's Jules O'Riordan. Um, I have had a 35-year career in the music business um, under my DJ moniker for a lot of that, Judge Jules, although I'm definitely not a judge in my legal practice. I'm a partner at Sound Advice, which is based at Tarryard in London's King's Cross, one of the UK's key music hubs. Um, I represent predominantly artists. So if you like, I operate on the coalface of the use of copyright Copyright. I'm Tom Gray. I've been in a band called Gomez since I was in my early teens, Mercury Prize winners and boring things like that. I compose for TV and film, latterly more in my career, and theatre. I'm also a director of PRS for Music, who obviously have a, work a lot with copyright. And I am a director of the Ivers Academy, representing songwriters. And I'm a writer, artist, advocate for the Featured Artist Coalition. And I'm the founder of the Broken Record Campaign. I think that, that covers me. That's a lot Sorry, of I'm, I forget broken record. I'm a broken man at this point. business cards, or do you, do you manage to squeeze it in on one very large postcard size? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. It's always terrible. Like when people say, "What do you want me to write after your name?" I, I don't really know anymore. I'm a little bit confused. But you're, I mean, you're hardly uh, skimping, Jules. To be fair, are you really? I've got multiple business cards, so another story. Um, Tom, tell us about your career as an artist. You've, you've talked sort of generically about what you do. Tell us, give us a bit of a potted career history. I, uh, yes, funny one. Um, so when I was in my late teens, just the lads I used to hang around with at, at college, um, we started recording on four-track machines uh, in our spare time for fun. That's what we did. That was, that was just what we did for shits and giggles. And then I'd just gone off to university to study politics in Leeds. And somebody got hold of our demo tape. Then about 25 record labels tried to sign us overnight. And we signed with a record company called Hut because we liked the A&R man a lot. And the next, and we actually, Madonna was about to fly us on her jet over to LA because uh, she wanted to sign us to Maverick at the time. And uh, I think I put my foot down and went, this is just getting stupid. So we signed to, to Hut before we did that um, and so that's a funny little story from my 19 year old brain and um and then i think about a year after we recorded that we won the mercury prize and then everything went a little bit mental but we quickly because we never had any hit singles we weren't a singles band we were very much an album band and that didn't really function in the uk you couldn't really have a career without singles so we kind of quickly realized that we should basically move to the United States and become a band there, which we did for most of a decade, really. Very sort of heavy touring live act. We do, you know, often in excess of 200 shows a year in that period. And then I suppose I got to around 2012, 2011, 12, the record industry was absolutely on its arse. <laughs> <laughs> a better term and we were all really really knackered unsurprisingly because we'd been touring for I don't know pretty much non-stop for 15 years 
and we we hung up our touring boots and that's when I got into composing for TV and and film and stuff and totally switched into being a full-time studio writer and then after a few years of kind of doing that it occurred to me that there wasn't many people like me who had a sort of um not bringing in politics and advocacy and knew a lot of people in politics. You know, just had an awareness and a low-level expertise in that area and thought, well, if I don't start advocating for musicians and musicians' rights, I'm not sure who is. It was one of those. So I just kind of went, uh, if not me, then who? And started doing more and more in, in terms of, you know, getting myself elected onto the board of PRS, becoming a director of very different organisations. Um, and then ultimately going on a Twitter rant that led to a campaign and a parliamentary inquiry. And, and here we are. So can we talk more about your creative process? I'm really interested to know how that changes from when you were in a band to the stuff that you're doing more recently, you said about, for example, composing for film. Is it different when you're working with the band and when you're doing things like for TV or film? Yeah, it's wholly different. Um, when you're working for yourself, you're just in a sort of reverie, trying to uh, follow your own whims and your uh, whatever interests you and what is exciting you in any given moment. And then, of course, you have to sell it into your own band, which was we were a very, very democratic band, which was always very, very hard, actually. There aren't very many bands like that. There usually is one guy or two guys, whereas we were very much uh, sort of a cooperative so you'd have to not only would you have to sort of do something think of something and really believe in it then you'd have to go and fight for it in a room with four other people and hope that they would come over to your way of thinking and then I think specifically with Gomez when I formed the band with Ian we very purposefully tried to be a genre-breaking band it was really intentional that we were not going to be a formal uh, band I think probably we were young and foolish and ambitious and kind of looked at what bands had become in the 90s, which was just four guys with one guy at the front singing. And kind of were like, well, why are bands like that now? When you looked at bands in the 60s and 70s, they were just crazy and all over the place and really diverse and had multiple singers. When did bands become this? And we just thought it was really boring. So we thought we'd have fun with it again. So that was what Gomez was about. That was the intention, if there was an intention. Whereas now, obviously, I'm writing to brief mostly at the moment I'm working on a, on a stage musical and I'm working with a book writer and I'm working with a stage director and every scene has to be broken down we have to know exactly what we're trying to say we have to think about the narrative arc the brief is incredibly tight in that respect that's a really interesting point because I remember um, in my career I mean my career was DJing and made loads and loads and loads of dance music records and suddenly I started getting into pitching for ads where you had to basically create a bit of music for 30 seconds worth of very, very pointed moments. And I just couldn't do it. I really, really couldn't do it because you, one gets so used to the luxury of a sort of five, six, seven minute track. Was that quite a cultural shift for you in terms of the creative process of doing something that's much more to a controlled brief? It's curious. If anything, I find writing to brief easier because... I suppose I was a kind of a person who, I, even as a writer, sort of created a brief for myself. I would decide 
formally what I wanted to do before I did something. I know not all writers do that, but that's how I would do it. I would kind of go, well, let's imagine a type of song and give myself references and then I would build within that world. Because it was always about sort of how do you break formal rules in writing and how do you do it in a sort of interesting way. So I was always playing those games anyway as a writer. It's interesting what you just said has been said before in this, this podcast series, which is an interesting point that I think creatives need to be mature and self-confident enough to admit, which is that a lot of people do start a track or a song from the inspiration of somebody else's work um, but certainly in terms of what we were sort of told last on the last instalment, it almost inevitably, and this is my experience as well, morphs into something that you would never get glean what that original bit of influence was. But that's obviously very relevant to copyright law. Where does influence end and kind of plagiarism begin? I think what I always used to do is I would say, like, how can you put two things together that don't belong together? And then in the process of trying to meld those two things together, I would inevitably fail to create the thing that I intended and would make something new. I would never copycat. In fact, I was very, went out of my way to not copycat. In fact, that was always a, one of the rules we go with was if it started sounding like something else, we would bin it. Which isn't to say that, I don't think you should overvalue originality. The thing is, is that in music, there's two things going on, right? There's people trying to, there's people trying to make value out of whatever they're making. That's absolutely right. You, you, you're trying to make something you can sell, you can monetize, you can, it's whatever. But the problem is if, if all you're doing is trying to make value, usually what you make is crap. And on the other side, you've got like uniqueness, shall we say, or the, the sort of whatever that is, originality, that is sort of unobtainium because like nobody truly can be because everything is built off the back and hey, there's only 13 notes anyway. The, the truth is, is that what you're actually seeking is unique value. It's those two things. And if you can find unique value, what you provide that has value, that's when you do well in this business, as far as I'm concerned. If you try and take either one of those two roads, you're going you're gonna to fail. So you have to kind of say, well, what is it that I'm bringing that the world wants? And, once you, and if you can realize that, I mean, that's where most of the success I had laid. So when you say about bringing what you can bring that's valuable, does that connect with what motivates you to create? Like, what is it that when you're thinking of what you can bring, what's the drive for you like that drives you to create or motivates you to create? That's just compulsion. I'm just a total compulsive. If I, and if I'm not creating, I get very, very sad. I get depressed. I'm not fun to be around, actually, if I'm not being creative. So, I mean, stay out of my way if I've not been <laughs> for a while. I think the thing for me, if it's not too immodest, I knew that I had good ideas. And that was usually that's most of the problem, right? It's having a good idea before you start doing something. It's like, why are you doing it? For me, it's always the thing is like, if I can justify why I'm doing it, then my compulsion has the right to sort of be, to exist in the space. But if I can't find a justification, which is why writing to brief actually helps me because it's a justification in itself. It's like, oh, you've told me I have to do this thing and now I have to do it, so I just do it. Whereas when I was writing for myself, I had to think of like production scope. I had to give myself a paradigm. 
within to which to work in order to to fill it like with Gomez's music it isn't like I have this sort of great sense of like ownership or pride in it it was more like about realizing something that was an idea and if you could realize the idea well then that was brilliant that was like joy and then you just move on to the next one and forget about it because that realization in the process of being able to like wrestle an idea to the ground and make it brilliant that's the golden stuff that's where you're like oh this is special you know you you raise a really good point because and i do quite a lot of lecturing in kind of schools and colleges and it's actually one of the first things that i say there are many career musicians or people who kind of go to the studio almost as a day job as a sense of discipline who don't necessarily go there with an idea in mind. And it sounds so dead obvious, but it really isn't that unless you've got an idea, unless you're starting a track with some sort of destination, even if it evolves into a wholly different destination, you really shouldn't start it in the first place. So that's, a, a, I think, a, a valuable anecdote. Well, that's it, because I don't, I don't care about the playing. I don't care about the performance. I care about the idea. Because actually, my feeling is, is that Often work which is like underwrought gives you a more of a sense of it has more of a sense of personality or a sense of itself or conveys the idea better than if it's overdone or it's overplayed or it's performed too well or it loses its character somehow. I'm very like if if I feel the idea is there, I'll stop. I'll just walk away. Because that's all I'm trying to do. I don't care about the notes. Clearly, you are a guy of ideas, and the Broken Record campaign would be uh, would be a good example of that. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, well, I do all of these other things in terms of working for PRS and working with songwriters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, I was a touring musician for a long time. And when COVID started, I was just sitting there going, "Bloody hell, this is really, really bad." It struck me as just like, well, we're not going to have live music. I don't think we're going to get it back for at least a year. You know, I can see licensing income, which is the money that songwriters and and performers get from PPL and PRS licenses from music playing in bars and restaurants, things like that. Well, they're all closed. So licensing money is going to collapse. And, you know, obviously touring's gone. And the only thing that's left is streaming. And streaming is the most poxy income imaginable. So how's that going to work? <laughs> how, how, can, how can an industry where one in a hundred, if not far, I think it's way less than that, actually. Spotify have got this figure that 43,000 artists in the world are doing okay out of Spotify, out of 4 million creators who are on Spotify. Now, the funny thing is, is that they, even they qualify it. They say 43,000 creators work is making that much money, which is to say, if 80% of them are on major labels, then 80% of that money is going to major labels. Come on. It's a horror show. Streaming is a horror show because it works on a pro rata system. It works on a per stream way of paying music, which is a terrible way of valuing music because it, <laughs> it means that one person who's not really listening puts on a piece of music. It has the exactly same value as someone who's playing their favorite song in the whole damn world. And that relationship is not part of the valuation of music. Then we've got a problem. Because 
it doesn't matter if you've got fans or if somebody's not paying attention to your music's playing, your music gets valued in exactly the same way. Um, so yeah, streaming is fundamentally flawed. For me, well, the greatest achievement of my life, and it remains that way to this day, and I would expect you'd think similar, was the, was the point at which I could make a full-time living out of being a musician. Um, the minute you're no longer a part-timer or, or, a, or a sort of hobbyist, and you're suddenly able to make a full-time living out of it. Now, clearly, from what you suggest, um, streaming is not helping uh, the, the, the amount of people globally that are capable of doing that. But at the same time, anecdotally, I'm kind of getting the impression that more of my artist clients are making something like decent sums. It may be that they're just advancing through the ranks, if you like. But that, that would be my sort of feeling. The thing is, is that there are some people who are doing better out of it, and they tend to be one kind of artist. And this is the problem. They tend to be fully independent, or on a fully indie deal, and they tend to be solo. And that's fine. If we only want one type of artist in the world, then streaming is perfect. <laughs> it's great. Let's forget bands, because duh, we're all over bands, right? And let's forget recording things in studios, because nothing any good's ever been recorded in a recording studio. Let's just make all of the music ever now by ourselves on laptops, because that's basically what streaming works for. The problem comes where you realise, you go, is it chicken and egg? Is the music becoming just solo artists making music on laptops because of the medium or because of taste? And then you're in a funny place because you start going, oh, well, wait a minute, maybe technology always shapes the, the thing. Or is it economics this time, not technology, that's shaping the music? Uh, personally, I would say it's the latter because bands just can't afford to do it. It's, it just doesn't fund bands. You take that sum and you divide it by four or five or six or eight. Let's take, you know, Stephen Stills' Manassas had like eight members. You don't see bands like that anymore, do you? What happened with Broken Record was I was sitting there one day and I got on Twitter and I just started ranting about it. I just ranted for about 20 tweets. Half of it wasn't quite right. I had to go back and correct it. Still like about 10 tweets where I'm sort of slightly correcting myself as I go because I was just ranting. And I, I put hashtag broken record on it. Which leads us on to a government inquiry, which is ongoing as we speak, as we're, we're recording this. You are one of the voices that are representing the interests of musicians in the streaming inquiry. Um, tell us a bit about how that's progressing, where we're at with it. From the very start with Broken Record, I started tweeting members of the DCMS Select Committee pretty, like, as a sort of continuing assault on them. Because I knew that we needed to do it. If we were going to get people, we were going to get witnesses and we were going to get people to speak up and we were going to get evidence to have another look at this, then that was the place to start. And amazingly, they went for it. And then I was called, called as the first witness. I asked some accountants and lawyers and people to appear alongside me. Because let's, let, let's be clear, there is no shortage of people who agree with me about this. <laughs> There is, no, there is no shortage of people who agree with me about this. We, when we had our first uh, day and Nadine Shah and Guy Garvey and Ed O'Brien appeared. So it was all a bit indie that day. And then on the second day, there was a manager. Uh, we got the fella in from the Spanish PPL talking about they, they have equitable remuneration uh, from streaming in Spain or a form of it. And I'd asked Nile Rogers to appear, not expecting him to agree, and he did. 
and the brilliant Fiona Bevan, who's a brilliant pop songwriter, and Soweto Kinch, the incredible hip-hop and jazz saxophonist. He MCs as well. And they were absolutely incredible. So let's assume listeners to the podcast don't know what equitable remuneration is. And shall we try to explain to them a little bit about how that would work? Nor can they probably pronounce it because I struggle. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it was funny because when Guy Garvey agreed to appear, he can't say it at all. And we spent about, eventually I'll just say, Guy, just say ER. It's going to be okay. No one's going to mind that you can't say equitable remuneration. No one can say equitable remuneration. Equitable remuneration is a right arising from the public performance of a recording. And what it states is basically that performers need to be paid from the the performance of that. So alongside the, let's say there's the exclusive right, which is the master right of the recording, which is could be owned by anybody. It could be owned by the artist, but more commonly is owned by a label. When, you know, a record is just sold, that money will just go to the label. You know, it might not go to the artist at all because the artist might be in debt or whatever to them. But with equitable remuneration in a performance situation, money will go to both the rights holder and to the performer. And in the UK, I mean, it's all sort of precedential, but in the UK, when music gets played on, say, for instance, Radio 1, like 120 quid, whatever, comes from that performance, 60 pounds will go to the label and 60 pounds will go to the performer. And that that money will not be counted against their debt. It won't be. It'll just go straight into their pockets. Hooray. It's the only residual income that goes to backing musicians. So it's money that goes to the drummers and the brass sections and the backing singers and all of those other people. Don't get any other money out of the system any other way in recorded music. Equitable remuneration is the only way. If we introduce equitable remuneration into streaming tomorrow, for the first time ever, our entire music community gets something. So what had occurred to me for a long time was streaming... It, at the essence of it, no one has really dealt with and never has dealt with what is a stream. The big question, what is a stream? Now, unsurprisingly, the record companies say that a stream is a sale. And it's very curious because if you look at what a stream is, right? So, okay, I'm a person and I'm subscribing to listen to some music, right? Now, that for starters, that sounds like rental, doesn't it? It's like, hmm, that sounds a lot like rent. I keep paying for it, and when I stop paying for it, I don't have it anymore. Okay, that sounds like rental. Now, wait a minute. I'm not always picking the thing that I'm listening to. Sometimes it's being played to me. That sounds an awful lot like radio, doesn't it? I'm not actively choosing it, but it's a sale. How, how are you selling me something that I haven't bought? Now, you start, what you start to get to, the point is, is the one thing that streaming evidently is not is a bloody sale, right? <laughs> like, record companies have chosen the one thing that it cannot possibly be. Guess what? In Under British law, if it's a rental, it produces equitable remuneration. If it's a license, which is what it... Wait a minute, all the music that the record companies have, they license it to the platforms. That's not a sale, is it? They've licensed it in our contracts. 
a third-party license pays 50-50, just like equitable remuneration. It's weird that, isn't it, that it's a sale and it's not a license? And it's, it's like radio. It's passive listening. And radio produces equitable remuneration. It's very curious that the record companies have, have found the one thing that means they keep all of the money, isn't it? But, but also the other thing to mention, of course, is the fact that, that the song element of it does generate a public performance. 100%, um, yes, yes. Even less sense and supports his position even further. So you've got two rights, again, just, just to explain for those who don't understand, when you've got two rights within any track that gets played, you've got the rights uh, enjoyed by the songwriters and you've got the rights enjoyed by the performers come record label. So if you are a songwriter and the song you wrote gets streamed, that generates a public performance royalty. But bizarrely, if you are one of the performers, even though the same public performance took place, you don't get it generated by a stream. There's, there is no sense to it all. And that's done through a piece of law called the making available right. And the making available right, which dates from ni- the 1988 um, Rental Act, Copyright and Rental Act or something like that, um, which amazingly creates this difference between a communication to the public and making available. Uh, in, under British law in the 1988 Act, it says that one thing can happen and only when the other thing isn't happening. So they're completely mutually exclusive. Otherwise, I think, is the one word in that piece of law that means that one thing can only happen exclusively of the other. And there's no reason for that. They shouldn't be, that they should be mutually exclusive. And even the last time they looked at that law was in 2006 with the uh, creation of the digital making available um, stuff. And that's pre-streaming as well, right? And yet... We're pushing all of streaming down this making available thing, which is basically sales, when evidently that's not what it is. But so what my, I I don't know if they've even published the evidence to the inquiry yet, but yours is published. Oh, is mine published? Yeah, yours is. So basically my argument is put equitable remuneration in the making available right. It's actually backwards. You don't need to put something in. You need to take something away because there's an exception. So equitable remuneration currently applies to radio play as a broadcast in UK law. But there's an exception that says otherwise, like you said, it's the word otherwise. And then it refers you to another section that says it doesn't apply when it's a transmission which is the communication to the public, but in this circumstance, they call it making available. So you know what I mean? You need to remove that exception because it doesn't make sense. It blocks equitable remuneration from applying to streaming, which, as you said, didn't exist at the time when they made that law. And actually, even though it comes from the 1988 Act, most of the 1988 Act, which is 32 years old, is a complete copy and paste from the 1952 Act. So the law is so old that none of this could have been foreseen at the time. Not that it doesn't mean it shouldn't change, but trying to understand why it would say that in the first place, a lot of it comes from the international level law, which when they said broadcast, there's this like weird thing in the law where there's this word that says radio transmission, because this level law is always written in French and then translated into English. Radio transmission, radio diffusion, sorry, not transmission. It's not a word in English, but it is a word in French, but they didn't translate it. So it says in English, radio diffusion. And then there's this whole thing about like, do they mean broadcast? But they did at the time, but they didn't mean broadcast the technology. They meant, they didn't want it to be technologically specific. And if you keep that philosophy, then it 
should apply to streaming because in essence it's the same i know if you go back through all of the eu directives back to whenever it looks like equitable remuneration is supposed to be in this it's supposed to be there there's no question about it the intention was always it should be there what's happened is the major labels have had have had lobbying power and control in all of the creations of these laws let's be clear that's what happens that's how this stuff happens but just to add a sense of context, so at the moment, the, the way streaming works, for those that don't know it, there's a big pot of money and you divide it in equally by any stream that gets over a certain amount of time. I, think, I believe it's 30 seconds, if I'm not mistaken. Um, are we saying, therefore, that the pot wouldn't grow any bigger, but the pot would have to be divided so that the per stream amount, some of it went towards the public performance element, as opposed to the streaming services, i.e. Spotify and Apple Music, et al., having to pay more per stream to accommodate uh, an equitable remuneration payment Absolutely. So, so, and Some people would argue that what you do is you just take all of the passive streaming, what the Americans call non-interactive, where you haven't chosen for yourself, which is playing out on a playlist. You take all of those streams and you pay equitable remuneration on them. Or you come up with some other way, some other formula for, decide, say it's 50-50. 50% of the streaming is extra remuneration, 50% isn't. It's all a negotiation. This is what we've always got to remember is, everything in the music business, like copyright exists all over the place, right? And these laws exist all over the place. But actually, almost everything that happens in the music business is a negotiation. In the first six months of this year, three companies have made $4 billion, right? How much of that money do you has got to artists? Do you have any idea? Because nobody does. Because they don't publish that. What do you think that artists as a whole, the artistic community, can do to, to further this cause? Well, you know, what I've been doing is actively speaking to legislators, you know, getting them in a room and talking to them. <laughs> going, is, is this really it? Do you think this is good? Because, I mean, it doesn't look really good to me. You're not doing a very good job here, lads and ladies. And it's just like, why would you leave it like this? Why, why would you kind of, how do we win from leaving it like this? What, is this what the intention was? I think this is what I keep saying is, is like, do you think the intention of creating equitable remuneration, do you think the intention of giving artists copyright protections, do you think the intention of any of this law was to give us this shit show? Because if you think it was, you've out of your fucking minds this is not the intention we're not we're not supposed to end up in a situation where music is wholesale defunded where we've lost our recording studios we're losing an enormous amount of expertise because these companies are have have built a system which monetizes them but doesn't incentivize them to make music we're in this very curious place where these companies have even forgotten really how to be music companies. And that's the thing that I really want to fix, which is why I'm such a strong advocate for user-centric, uh, even though I haven't raised user-centric payment within the inquiry because I have a strong feeling that user-centric isn't achievable legislatively because it's the private contracts between the, the licensor and licensees, between the record companies and the platforms, which means governments aren't going to interfere with that. 
So the only thing that we can do to change that distribution model, get away from what's known as the revenue share model, which is what you were talking about, which is total money divided by total streams, and move to a model where my money as an individual user just goes to what I listen to, which is enormously beneficial to bands and artists with audiences, i.e. bands and artists that people like, to do that, the only way we're going to get to a place where that happens is sheer, is through sheer pressure, is just through pushing and asking and demanding and insisting that they review the way that they work. Whereas if you, 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 move, to a, you move to a model where the money gets more shared out and suddenly it's like, oh, we better put money into jazz. We better put money into uh, folk music. We better put, because these have audiences and people want to buy it. People are quite horrified to find out. Users don't actually know that that's not the model. People I speak to anyway, when you tell them, you know that listening to that band, they don't get that money. Like, I think the pressure can also come from the streaming users. Um... You mentioned about the wrong intention. You you know, when you're saying like, we're going to the room and you'd be like, is this what you meant? Because this can't possibly be it. So. What do you think the intention of copyright is? The intention of copyright is to allow for the realisation of the value of invention. It's allowing humans to realise the value of their individual creativity. That's, yes, exactly it. But it's a thing that you can trade and you can sell and you can give to other people. And the problem that we have in the UK is that we do not give enough protections to the individual and give far too much allowance to the company and the corporation. And, and the problem is, is that the individual versus a large company does not have a symmetrical negotiation position. We have to get better at making sure that lawmakers and legislators hear the creative voice and not the voices of corporations and commercial enterprises. Because we're the citizens, we're the constituents. In the last podcast recording that we did with Ali Condon from uh, PRS for Music, she mentioned that when she was trying to get artists to come with her to lobby the government and do what you're saying that you do, she sometimes gets uh, resistance and even one artist saying, this does not fit my brand. So what do you say to people maybe to encourage them to get involved in policy? I can't imagine someone saying, oh, I don't want to speak to politicians because it, it makes me look like whatever. I don't even know what it would make you look like. But come on, like, get a grip. What I've tried to do is educate people. I think a lot of times people, you know, don't want to get involved because they don't feel like they know what they're talking about. What I always say to them is that the truth is, is that most people don't know what they're talking about. The point is, is just say what you're thinking and get involved. When it comes to like actual people who are working in a field, who are experts in their field, not feeling like they can speak for themselves because they have been cocooned in a layer of sort of bureaucracy their entire careers, which has meant that they don't feel like they understand how their world works. Something's really wrong there. It's this thing of like, oh, you know, the artist is a bit of an idiot. Just let them carry on doing their stuff. They'll be fine. You know, it's like, come on, just explain it in words that they can understand and they'll be as expert as you in a couple of days. For me, it's just a, it's just an education piece, really. More, and like with Broken Record, it's like I said from the start, like, I don't really know if we can achieve this 
It's crazy to try and achieve it. It's fun to try and achieve it. But if in the course of failing to achieve it, a load of creators come out of this knowing what the fuck is going on, then it was worth it. Yeah, I say bravo to that because there, there's too much of this whole world being shrouded in some sort of emperor's new clothes style mystery. And actually, when it's broken down and explained in relatively straightforward terms, it isn't that complicated. I mean, that's literally my job is to explain copyright to people in a way that is easy to understand. So I think it's totally doable. And it really annoys me when people try to overcomplicate it and talk about it in Latin. And I'm like, shut up, because you can especially explain it to people who work within that because they can understand it because they do it. So you just make it relative to them. So it's like when you make your song and you make your lyrics, then this is how that works. Like it's actually easy to explain it to someone. It's harder to explain it to like my mum, who's got no idea because she's not a songwriter. I completely agree. There's this kind of like charade of like, oh, it's so complicated. Don't worry about that. Don't worry your little head. It's like, it's really actually not that that complicated. It's a horror show. What's having to happen though is that artists are becoming more DIY and in control of their own careers. They're having to get across this stuff. But what I don't think that's happening is, is the real top line stuff, which is actually, yeah, you can organize your career, but guess what? There's this stuff way up here that's actually your rights. That if you get involved in it, it isn't that hard. We're coming in with a very strong, clear line with a clear legislative answer to a clear economic structural problem. You know, we're not just pissing in the wind. It's like this, this is fixable and be prepared for people who are very knowledgeable and have figured this out. For years, governments have simply heard from the corporations. They're the only ones who've been taking them out to dinner, right? And it's just, game's up, lads. Like, it really is. The game is up. We might not be able to take them out as good a dinner as you. Way more than us. And we've got Paul McCartney. Well, it's true as well, because um, when I was doing my PhD, I looked at uh, policy engagement on copyright. Sounds really boring. But the take-home message was when they first made the law, you know, the 52, the 88, the only people who got involved in what's happening now, then, were big, massive companies no individuals and then as you look at the changes in the law to more recently more individuals started to get involved different stakeholders so people who represent artists and creators and then now you're seeing loads of creators and artists and there's it's a numbers game there's more so that's why it's so important i think for artists and creators users like you said constituents people to get involved because Although those corporations have the money and influence, they're smaller. What most artists don't realise, what most musicians don't realise, and I constantly send this, always go, what can I do? How can I help? Because what a protest people want to do. I'm like, write in your best handwriting a letter to your MP, because that is the thing that will change British law faster than anything else, is handwritten letters to MPs. It's really boring. And it's really, really obvious. But that is how you shift the dial in British politics. I think people feel like it's so far away from them. They feel like politics and legislation is like this thing that's just like untouchable or just on telly. It's just, but it's like, you know, most people's constituency MPs office is within a few miles of their house. And you can knock on the door whenever you like and demand that they do something about your problem. Because that's what a constituency MP is. People just need to be reminded 
how democracy works, right? For them to engage in it. It's like, oh shit, you mean I can just go and cause a stink in my MP's office? Yeah, you can. It's brilliant. Especially something like this, where you're not just going to get a generic response from your MP. They've got to give you something quite specific, haven't they? Absolutely. They've got, it's like, do you know about this issue? Do you know that musicians earn shit money? Do you know that they haven't been able to tour for a year? Do you know that British law isn't helping us, but it's helping these companies that are foreign multinationals? Do you know we're stiffed? all the time and we can't get the best deals because the better deal doesn't exist for us. Can you do something about that, please? It'd be great if you could. I really hope that people listening to this do write to their MP and, and you're right, I think it's the small things. And, but a lot of the time people don't know what it is that they, they can do. And I think if you watch the, the inquiry, the whole thing is online, you can go and watch the evidence that's been given. And I think if you watch the reactions of the MPs, the answer is no, they don't know. So you do have a responsibility to tell them because they're not psychic. And unless they hear from people who are experiencing that, like they're very much, MPs are a certain group of people who have a certain life experience. And so they need to hear from people who are having a different life experience to be able to take that into consideration you know so i think that's why it's it's so important that's been fantastic sort of evangelical stuff that, that <laughs> anybody who cares about musicians and just how difficult it is to make a full-time living as a musician should care about these issues and not just sort of stare in the metaphorical mirror and think about themselves thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe join us next time when we chat to annabella coldrick ceo of the music managers forum We talk more about the streaming inquiry, but also the artist-manager dynamic and even TikTok.